Hello and welcome to the latest installment of Let's Emma Talks. Today I'm joined by Jason Levine, a senior manager at Let's Emma. Jason, how are you? How are you doing today? Adam, hi. So I'm doing great today, actually. Uh, thanks for asking. Man, I'm really looking forward to spending some time with you talking about uh, one of my favorite topics. Yes, and that topic is digital transformation, the challenges organizations face as they try to digitally transform and the reasons why they fail. Uh, when they try to do so. Before we get there, Jason, if you could please walk us through your career journey and how you've come to be acquainted with digital transformation, I think that'd be a great way to provide some context before we continue in our discussion. Yeah, sure, by all means. Thanks, Adam. So as you pointed out, I'm a senior manager with Letsema. I've been with the company um, around about two and a half years now. In general, I've had about, I'd say about 18 years of experience uh, with digital specifically. In fact, when digital first arrived in South Africa, per se, one of the forms that arrived in uh, was from a mobile perspective. And one of the first things that came about in that sense, when the mobile networks were set up and uh, began to deploy billing models, were entities called WASPs, which are wireless application service providers. And uh, some of us who are old enough to remember may fondly recall being able to download ringtones and games and, and all sorts of things like that uh, onto our mobile devices. That was the, the era of paid personalization on mobile devices. And that was really, in a sense, our first experiment as a country with what I would call digital performance marketing. It was really the first time one was able to use data as a means of empirically and accurately measuring the performance of marketing investment. That is where the whole concept of performance marketing was spawned. It was the first real, real instance of data-driven decision-making whereby that data was produced in real time uh, and one could use it from a business perspective to make real-time decisions. Uh, mm. And of course, the key distinction about that was that what is typically a year-long strategic uh, planning cycle for many organizations was now really reduced and cut down to a virtually a real-time basis where you could start to reallocate uh, marketing investments in this case on a, on a near real-time basis, uh, which was something quite unique. So I spent a few years, a few of my formative years uh, in that respect. Another organization, which was an international digital marketing organization, whereby I was lucky enough to launch a mobile product for that organization. And again, uh, was able to deploy this product in numerous countries, in numerous languages, with different currencies, etc., and essentially run that entire global business from a spreadsheet. Uh, I do apologize for my dog in the background. <laughs> Travails of working from a home office. Yes, the working from home time. So, yeah, so please continue. So that provided the ability to essentially manage an entire business uh, from a single spreadsheet that was updated uh, either in real time or on a day-to-day -day basis. So this really started to provide the foundations for the way businesses could be managed if they had sufficient data insight and the technology to support that. So that was very instructive in terms of uh, my development as a strategist uh, and leading up to becoming a digital transformation strategist. I then moved into a, a global technology systems integrator. This was now moving much more into the technical space of digital, which is really focusing more on what happens um, under the bonnet, so to speak. What is going on in terms of the technical underpinnings, the, the infrastructure, the software, the enterprise architecture that makes digital work. So that gave me a lot of insight into that area of digital and really just understanding the kind of parameters at play there. So mm -hmm. what really makes digital tick? And I spent uh, quite a few years doing that. Uh, and that is where I evolved into the role of a digital transformation consultant. And from there, uh, I then moved to Let's Emma, 
where the practice that I work in at the moment is the customer strategy practice. So we very much uh, take a customer first approach, both to the strategy that we develop and any sort of transformation strategies we develop as well. So we really bring the, the concept of customer centricity to life. And, and as I'll discuss a little bit later on in this talk, customer centricity is also the concept that lies at the heart of every successful digital transformation as well. Mm. Your career almost pockmarked the evolution of digital, very broadly speaking. Hence, we're very glad to have you here because, as I noted earlier, we are speaking about digital transformation. And according to the International Data Corporate, the IDC, organizations spent approximately $1.2 trillion on digital transformation products and services in 2019, which is an increase of approximately 18% versus 2018. So what is digital transformation and, and why is it such an imperative? Why is it on the top of everybody's tongue? Thanks, Adam. I mean, you're really reflecting on the fact that the amount of investment and activity occurring in the space of digital transformation is, is absolutely immense. There is an enormous round of hype around it, a lot of hype being built around it. And, uh, and I think there's also a lot of misconceptions that have come along with that hype. But I think before we get into uh, defining what digital transformation really is and means, it's worthwhile mm -hmm. reflecting for a moment just on what the drivers of digital transformation have been. I think these are fairly uh, well understood, but, but it's worth just mentioning. And there's two main things to mention about it. The first thing, of course, is the rate of change of technology. That's the primary driver behind this need to digitally transform. And that is a rate that has been increasing over time. And the evolution has been, uh, frankly, quite astonishing. And a, an example that's commonly used, just to give a, a sense of just how dramatically things have moved on, is that if you consider that the computing power of the Apollo 11, uh, which was the program that put Neil Armstrong on the moon for the first time, uh, or man on the moon on, for the first time in 1969, the Apple iPhone today has over 100,000 times the computing power than was contained uh, in that entire rocket and capsule that uh, operated that mission. And so that just gives you a sense of how rapidly things have moved on, that you've got an astonishing amount of power and access within the confines of an iPhone that we can all carry around with us today. And so that leads on to the second driver associated with this need for change, which is the adoption of these very powerful consumerized technologies by consumers. And this has dramatically and quite profoundly changed how consumers seek information, how they buy, when they buy, and also the, the factors in their decision journey that have become increasingly important to them. Factors like speed, the requirement for 24-7 access, the requirement for information and visibility and transparency about certain things. And so uh, as people have increasingly adopted these technologies, it's profoundly changed the way that they're doing things. And, and obviously mm -hmm. that has had an impact on how the companies that serve them, their products and services, um, have to be orientated in order to be able to remain relevant uh, to them. So those are really the two sort of key drivers that have caused companies to have to quite rapidly adapt to the shifting needs and expectations of today's consumer. Mm. Maybe then the first thing that we do need to do then is talk about a common language and what digital transformation is generally accepted as being, I mean, not being versed in this, not being an expert in this field. Can you help break it down for us just into a bit, bit more detail? Yes. Yeah, so what is digital transformation? That's a great question, Adam, because what I found in my experience, and in fact, I think what many practitioners encounter in their experience is different interpretations of what a digital transformation actually means. I think if you ask, you know, five people what they think it means, you, you'll probably get five different variations of what the answer is. So 
what I'm going to defer to is sort of the conventionally understood meaning of what is generally accepted in the industry. So I think the easiest way to think about digital transformation is in terms of a pyramid, a pyramid Mm. with three levels. If we start at the bottom of the pyramid, so the most sort of basic fundamental level of digital transformation, we call that level digitization. And digitization Mm. is very simple and easy to understand. It simply means to convert a physical or analog product or uh, item into something that is digital. So a, a document that you have printed out in, the, in your office, for example, if you convert that into a digital format, you have now effectively digitized that document. And now there's very cool things you can do with that that you couldn't do when it was physical. So this really is the, the lowest rung of the digital transformation level, which is simply digitizing uh, physical goods into virtual or digital goods. Then we move up to the next level of sophistication in the, in the ladder. And this level we call digitalization. Now, there are some different interpretations of what digitalization means, even amongst the experts. But uh, what I'm going to do is give you what is most commonly accepted uh, and what's practical and easy to think about in terms of uh, this evolution. Essentially, Mm -hmm. digitalization refers to the enhancement of business operations. So that could be through things like process automation or um, increasingly utilizing digital ways of working. So if you imagine now that you've initially had everything that was paper-based, let's say a paper-based process, now that you've digitized that paper into a virtual format, you're now in a position to automate that process because everything exists in a digital format. Therefore, the next Mm -hmm. level now is to kind of string these things together into processes, which people can now use, And you can immediately start to understand some of the great benefits associated with that. You've now created lots of cost efficiencies because there's Mm. less paper, for example. There's a lot more time efficiencies because I don't have to walk to somebody else's office with a piece of paper. I can email it and I can email that piece of paper across the world or that digital paper across the world, if you will. Uh, In addition to that, there's also a number of benefits associated with these new digital ways of working, which, Adam, is is a topic for itself for another day. Uh, which mm. we could get into, but that's another benefit of digitalization. Then we come to the top layer of the pyramid, which is digital transformation itself. Now, digital transformation is a much broader, it's holistic kind mm. of transformation program. And importantly, it's a customer-led uh, form of transformation. And we can distill the end goal of this transformation program down into two main ideas. Mm. The first main idea is around relevance. Becoming increasingly relevant to your customer is really the main ambition of a digital transformation. It's its main purpose. This rapid change that's taking place and how customers have been adopting this technology and changing what they do has meant that uh, the companies that serve them have also had to keep pace with these changing customer needs and preferences. So remaining relevant to the expectation and needs of your customer is really one of the primary ambitions of transforming digitally. It's why you do it. Because if you lose relevance with your customer, you've lost everything. It doesn't matter what else you fix in your organization or change or modernize. Once you've lost relevance with your customer, that's it. Uh, The game is over. So this really is the key goal of any digital transformation program. You must have ended up more relevant to your customer at the end than when you started. So what we've understood from that is that when you don't remain relevant to your customer, you then slide into irrelevance. And the end goal after irrelevance is obsolescence, i.e. you become so relevant to your customers, you you literally go out of business. So what follows from that is the necessity of your organization having the characteristic 
to be able to respond to change. And that brings us mm. to the second idea or desirable outcome from a digital transformation program, which is building and becoming what's called a responsive organization. Now, something to reflect on here about organizations is that traditional organizations, if we go back 20, 30, 40, 50 years, when the rate of change was a lot slower than it is today, they were built with a certain structure, a certain set of processes, and a certain level of governance that was fit for purpose to enable the strategy at that point in time. And remembering that at that point in time, change was happening a lot slower than it is today. Now, one of the consequences of that, of these traditional organizations, is that they were not built for change. They were built to be fit for purpose at a point in time. But change was quite disruptive and quite a convulsive shift for them, simply because they weren't designed to be able to sort of bend and flex. So the ideal today is the recognition that you have to build an organization and transform it in, in a manner that it can easily bend and flex according to the change that's required. It must become a highly adaptable organization. So that's uh, the second key outcome. The third key outcome from a digital transformation is typically understood to be a transformation in the way that businesses deliver value to their customers. And this often means new kinds of business models. So that will often result from a digital transformation, which is obviously quite different from incremental change where your business model has fundamentally not changed at all. Perhaps just how you go about it uh, may have changed slightly. Now, mm -hmm. one of the easiest examples to give um, of what this looks like is to consider platform models. Now, a platform model may sound like a fairly sophisticated term, but in fact, they've been around for thousands of years. What a platform is really is simply a, a space, a space that exists to connect buyers and sellers. So mm -hmm. uh, what readily comes to mind in that sense is Amazon.com. Uh, we're probably all familiar with them as one of the biggest, if not the biggest platform model that exists today. But what's also a platform model is your local mall or even a marketplace that existed in ancient Rome. Mm. These all served to connect buyers and sellers. That's what platforms do. However, uh, what will obviously occur to you is that one of these platforms is significantly more successful than the others, right? Okay, so Amazon.com is now the biggest platform uh, probably in the universe as far as we know, Adam. Yeah, or, okay. or um, even eBay, um, which eons before it, which just kind of highlights the, the pace of change uh, that Absolutely. you have been speaking about. Absolutely right. Now, why is that? Mm. And so it's because of the digital economics associated with the virtual world. In the virtual world, there are certain constraints that fall away that don't exist that obviously do in the physical world. So a physical marketplace by default, uh, has certain constraints. The one constraint mm. is that it's limited in terms of the customers that can serve. It is only, frankly, going to serve local customers for whom it's convenient to go and visit that particular space. The second constraint that it has is in terms of the inventory it can keep. There's only so much inventory you can keep uh, in a physical mm. space. Uh, it's very limited. So those are two of the kind of common constraints um, faced by any sort of bricks and mortar operation. These constraints almost entirely fall away in the virtual world. So anyone, anywhere on the planet can access Amazon.com. Its reach, therefore, is what could be termed exponential. It has zero constraints in terms of that reach, so long as it's able to, I suppose, deliver uh, wherever is required. But it has no constraints in that regard. The second thing it has no constraints in is in terms of the inventory uh, it can carry. There's theoretically an unlimited amount of products and services, I suppose, uh, that you could access on Amazon. 
Now, there is a, an interesting dynamic that ensues in the digital space, which is this kind of self-reinforcing loop. The more products you're able to have in that marketplace, the more customers you're likely to attract. And then the more customers you attract, the more the propensity is going to be for other suppliers of products to put their products there as well. And, and so you can see how the cycle kind of feeds into each other and in a way explains how Amazon has grown into the behemoth that it is today. So those are some of the digital economics that make it very attractive for businesses to transform and increasingly adopt what we might call digital business models. Um, and so that's another, uh, very often another key driver for why organizations embark on digital transformations and certainly one of the key outcomes they'd be looking for from that. I guess, I mean, you're describing what seems to be, and I mean, you've named uh, Amazon a nameplate organization, now the world's largest that when you began selling books in the late 90s, the case is very robust on the one hand, but saying that most attempts um, in your experience, do they fail? How do you reconcile this? So I guess maybe the question to ask you then is why does digital transformation fail? Where do people go wrong? Okay, so that's a great question, Adam, because so much money, effort, energy, etc., is invested into digital transformations. And the expectations arising out of the desired future state a company could have are great. You know, companies pin a lot on the success of these kinds of digital transformations. The failure rates that you mentioned are, are certainly not just in my experience, but if one sort of consults pretty much any research on the subject, you'll find that the territory is that roughly 70 to 80% of all digital transformations, and this is really a, a global purview, fail. They fail to live up to expectation. Now, I suppose what one has to do is just define what, what do we mean when we say fail? So failure typically means, and these are kind of the, the metrics they looked at in terms of these studies, is that the business value envisioned from the money that was invested was not realized. There was not the envisioned return. So they didn't get a return on investment. And, and secondly, the second way that they looked at these is in terms of the objective set out for the transformation. So from a revenue perspective, it's easy enough to, uh, to sort of measure whether you achieved uh, the sort of return you were looking for. But uh, as I previously mentioned, there are other kinds of objectives you may want to realize out of these, such as realizing greater agility, strategic agility in the organization. Um, uh, developing a more responsive uh, kind of organization, a more data-driven kind of organization, for example. So when mm -hmm. companies don't actually achieve these kinds of outcomes that they try to, uh, that then is considered a failure because you've invested typically an enormous amount of money in a significant and holistic change program that hasn't worked. That's, uh, that's, that's highly problematic, particularly in uh, what is today for most organizations uh, a fiscally constrained environment. So one certainly wants to uh, try and avoid those failures where possible. Yeah, so the idea behind this is to essentially give you some insights, both from my experience and also for, uh, based on a, a, you know, a lot of research, uh, et cetera, that's out there. In terms of what some of the most common reasons are that uh, these transformation fails fail. Now, it's important to point out that I'm going to provide three reasons. Therefore, these reasons are not exhaustive. Um, with an endeavor uh, on the scale that a digital transformation is, there's a variety of factors that can Im impact whether they succeed or not. So given mm -hmm. the time constraints here, what I'm going to give you is a fairly simplistic view um, of what these challenges can be. But notwithstanding that fact, these are the ones that I believe are most highly associated with most failures that occur. Let's get into the first one. Uh, the first one, probably 
almost always needs to be there. Uh, and that is leadership. Now, that's not to say that if a transformation fails, one can 100% pin the fault uh, on leadership. Uh, th that's not what I'm saying there. As I've previously mentioned, there are a number of variables uh, that can actually cause that to fail. But the point to be made there, as I think as most people readily understand, leadership um, of all the variables are the one that have the greatest influence on whether that initiative or program is going to succeed or fail. So leadership are always most responsible for these things. Uh, and there are a number of things that can go wrong in that respect that can directly contribute uh, to the failure of these sorts of programs. So there are a few that I want to mention briefly. The first one and the one that I've certainly found to be most common is when there exists a lack of alignment in respect of vision and goals. Now, firstly, from the point of view of vision, for a transformation program of this nature, it's incredibly important that there is a compelling vision that drives the program that everyone unites behind. Everyone understands, everyone buys into and unites behind. So that's, that in a, in, a, in a sense is a requirement in and of itself. The second thing is that strategic direction comes from leadership. It cascades down into the organization from the leadership. The operationalization or the execution against that direction um, is what ultimately will deliver the results of both the business's corporate strategy and of the transformation program at well, right? So mm -hmm. it follows that if what's being cascaded down is not entirely congruent or aligned with the original strategy or intent, then those objectives are unlikely to be met. Most organizations or large organizations use, for example, a balanced scorecard to provide a strategy map. A strategy map mm -hmm. essentially shows the linkages between um, objectives throughout the, the main strategic objectives, uh, usually in four dimensions, uh, throughout the organization, and what the cause-effect relationship is between those various objectives. Now, that strategy map makes it clear that unless everyone works together and collaborates in alignment with those objectives, that theoretically and technically and practically, in fact, those objectives will not be met. And so when you have this lack of alignment at a leadership level in respect of either the vision or the goals associated with the program, it almost will follow that it won't work. So having that alignment is critical. The second thing is around commitment uh, to the program. Uh, and this is something interesting I experienced that I think is probably fairly pervasive. If you imagine a large organization that's been around perhaps for uh, you know several decades and is very successful. Let's imagine it's very successful. Mm. You, you're now sort of approaching them or they're discussing the topic of transformation of change. What one can encounter in some cases is reluctance. A reluctance to believe that what has historically worked for them is now starting to not work for them. It, it's almost unbelievable to them that the recipe that got them to where they are now has to change. Uh, and that can be very difficult. Now, anyone in a leadership position is in a critically important change agent for driving uh, the transformation that's required. Mm -hmm. But when you encounter people who are reluctant to believe that that change is required, you're clearly not going to get that energy for them. Uh, and uh, I'll give you a practical example of this. I once consulted with a, a large uh, global financial institution Part of the leadership was absolutely adamant that the transformation needed to occur and was going to occur. Um, and as part of the process, we went in and, and interviewed all of the leadership and uh, up and down and across the organization. And we found some leaders who were absolutely adamant that all of this was hot, 
there was no real need to change anything and that what they had always been doing will always continue to work and they simply couldn't accept that there was any need for change. Now, what's going to follow from that is that that person is going to be an antagonist in the process and is not going to sort of align with what needs to be done. So that will then start to become um, a cause of failure in that particular program. So that mm -hmm. commitment from the leadership team uh, based on their buy-in and belief in the program is, is absolutely essential. So step in very, very briefly to the most obvious example, Kodak is an instance in organization. I, mean, I think that's very, very often cited as a case study of a Fortune 500 company that failed to recognize the speed of technological change within cameras. In, an, in a way, would you term lack of commitment in counting a person and who, who would reply, why reinvent the wheel in that sense? Because they're just unable to see the change forthcoming. That's absolutely right, Adam. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a basic function of human psychology. If something has worked for so long and built such a, mm. a successful, profound organization, to have people come in or even internal people turn around and say, we now need to change what we're doing or else, that's very hard to believe. When you've been yes. invested in something uh, that has worked, you know, for most of your career, it's very difficult to believe that things now need to fundamentally change. It's easier mm. today to believe it or understand it, because today we have a litany of case studies of where companies like, and you raised the case of Kodak, for example, have not transformed, not adapted accordingly, uh, you know, the catastrophe that that ended up being. Today, we have the benefit of that hindsight. But if you go back five, 10 Indeed. years, et cetera, uh, people didn't have the benefit of that hindsight. And so you encountered this uh, sort of basic psychology that found it very difficult to believe that things in fact mm -hmm. needed to change. So absolutely right. Now, the, the final one I want to come to from a, a leadership perspective is, uh, I suppose, what uh, I've termed or what, or what is termed the Ivory Tower Syndrome. This is where senior leadership sort of exists in their Ivory Tower, so to speak, and are mm -hmm. quite disconnected from the reality on the ground, from the reality of what goes on in the trenches. Now, the thing about change is that you can't change what you don't acknowledge because there's nothing to change in that case, right? And the problem is some of those um, unsuitable sort of characteristics of an organization often need to change for a successful transformation. And so I, I want to give you an example of this because this is uh, also, I think, quite a common problem uh, that could be quite difficult to overcome. So again, the case of consulting to a large organization about a, a digital transformation Again, conducting uh, interviews, and this was now of a Group Exco uh, member, so uh, an incredibly mm -hmm. senior person in the organization. And uh, we had previously been interviewing a number of other stakeholders up and down the hierarchy and, and uh, came to the conclusion, based on the evidence uh, that was provided to us, so not our opinion, but the evidence gained, that mm. the, they felt the environment was constituted of a blame culture, that was intolerant to failure. If you failed, say goodbye to your career kind of thing. And, and that had some deleterious effects, of course, because mm. that meant people were afraid to experiment. People were afraid to try things because if you did and you failed, the consequences were significant. Now, that's not compatible with today's modern organization that needs to be experimental, needs to be adaptive. You know, that's how you adapt. You experiment with things. So we, we brought that uh, sort of consolidated feedback to this particular stakeholder and, and played it back to her and said, look, this is what we've sort of picked up on the ground. You know, what are your thoughts around us? And she turned around and said, that's impossible. That's not true. It's not like that. And I know it's not like that because in the Exco, we've decided, we had long decided that that's not the culture we're going to have in this organization. And it, it was quite a, 
almost almost a shocking thing to hear that despite the actual evidence that's come up from the ground, there was this utter unwillingness to believe that that was the case simply because that wasn't an aspect of the reality that that Exco team had created for themselves. It wasn't in the PowerPoint slide, right? That's not what it said. Therefore, it yes. can't be real. Yes. But, but in fact, it was real. Now, unless we would be able to get that stakeholder to accept and acknowledge the unfortunately awkward reality that actually existed on the ground, it would then not be dealt with. And if it was not dealt with, then transformation could not happen. And so one then also finds this kind of Aubrey Tower syndrome, which can prevent uh, the kind of change that needs to occur from occurring. Mm, it's among one of the most difficult issues to solve with an organization is people. Uh, characterized by leadership, uh, as as you noted, and people are unpredictable. They can be emotional, uh, and it's far more difficult to deal with with individual personalities, perhaps, or within a group setting, versus a data sheet. So uh, I think I know change change management experts uh, would agree with you there. Now you, you spoke a bit about customer centricity. Uh, could you just maybe elaborate uh, a bit more about that in terms of uh, what it might or might not have to do uh, with failure? So that brings me to. Um, another a great point of failure. So customer centricity is also one of these sort of hype words, uh, buzzwords going around at the moment. And, and most organizations are trying to adopt a customer centric approach. And, and this is appropriate because customer centricity is probably the most important kind of business philosophy uh, that exists today. It, it is the central tenet that every business needs to sort of implement into, into their operations. Now, the, the challenge around customer centricity is that while most organizations have adopted this, and you'll find it uh, in all of their PowerPoint slides, the challenge here is that it's very difficult to actually make customers the central organizing point for transformation strategy, for digital transformation mm -hmm. strategy. And it is widely recognized that, that transformation strategy must be customer-led. Again, coming back to that reason, because the outcome of your transformation must mean that you're more relevant to your so it therefore follows that that's the central organizing point for it. Now, yes. there's, a, there's a couple of things around that that are worth pointing out. Firstly, to be customer-led suggests that you have accurate and up-to-date customer insights that are driving your decision-making, not assumption and not opinion. Okay, so you want to eliminate a product-centric view that effectively puts the company's interests ahead of the customer's interests. And, and that happens quite easily in organizations because the way that, that organizations uh, have frequently developed products or services is on the basis of what's going to deliver a good margin to them, what are they able to develop, and so on and so forth, without actually considering, well, what is that actually that customers need? Okay, so they go ahead and develop these uh, products and services and then try and force them or foist them, should I say, onto mm. their customers and hope there's uptake. Okay, so first of all, the first part is you need accurate, up-to-date customer insights. And that's really, the uh, I would say, the easy part uh, because sure. uh, those are easily accessible through the right means. Okay, coming to the more difficult part. The more difficult part about a customer-centric digital transformation is the manner in which you embed those insights into the objectives of the transformation so that you can monitor how every cent you spend on the program can be empirically linked back to specific measurable objectives. Uh, and this actually is legitimately not that easy to do, uh, although mm. uh, there are methodologies uh, available uh, to help organizations to do that. So 
Now, most companies would respond and say, well, actually, all of our transformation programs are formalized in the sense that we do have measures of success. So we know what success looks like and we know what we're trying to get to. But where they often miss is that those measures of success are not directly linked to the outcome of greater customer relevance. So Mm. to be more specific about what I mean there is that if you don't have direct visibility of how the investment that you're making um, in a transformation effort clearly links back to improving the customer's experience. And if you can't measure whether, in fact, uh, what has been deployed is moving, shifting the dial on the customer experience, then you're not, in fact, using the customer as the central organizing point uh, for your change. You're probably using something else um, as a lagging indicator, perhaps, such as revenue. Okay. Now, it may sound obvious that, of course, revenue should be the, the ultimate outcome of this. You know, making a profit is what business is all about. But the insight that's missed here is that revenue and profit, well, revenue specifically, follow from greater relevance to your customers. And that's why you make the customer the means to that end. And that's why your focus is on the customer. If you're successful there, the revenue will follow. If your focus is on Mm -hmm. the revenue, you may or may not increase your relevance to customers. That can be hit and miss. And that is precisely where many of these programs go wrong. Uh, It's because they miss that insight. And even if they do have that insight, they actually don't know how to link all of these different kinds of change projects that make up the program Mm -hmm. that will to what ultimately enhances the customer experience throughout the customer journey. So that's what's uh, missing there from that perspective. Then the final point I want to come to that is a common reason that these transformation programs um, don't fail is what I call the strategy ivory tower. So we had the leadership ivory tower where we explored the disconnect with uh, leadership and what happens in the boardroom versus the actual reality on the ground. The strategy ivory tower is a similar concept, but from a strategic perspective. Okay, so let's begin with another uh, general, generally true research finding, which is that approximately 60 to 70% of well-formulated strategies fail due to poor execution. Now, the key word there is well-formulated strategies. In other words, these are good strategies. Okay, mm-hmm. so most good strategies fail because of poor execution. Okay, now with that in mind, what we find is that when things don't work out as planned, right, the knee jerk reaction that most companies have is to go and develop a new strategy. Well, that one didn't work. Clearly, we need a new one. So let's bring in some, uh, some consultants or let's get uh, the strategy department to go and relook at this thing because it didn't work. So that's the knee-jerk reaction one finds. When, mm. in fact, the problem is most often actually the execution of, of what was probably a perfectly sound strategy to begin with. Yes, there's always room for optimization of strategy, um, but very often the core strategy is actually there. Um, and as they say, it's better to execute a mediocre strategy well than to be absolutely unable to execute a fantastic strategy at all. Okay. So whether that happens consciously or unconsciously, I'm not sure. But but developing a new strategy is a lot easier than fixing execution. Fixing execution can be a complex, difficult task. And so, again, I I don't know whether it's deliberate or unconscious, but but most companies default back to just developing a new strategy and, and, and trying again. So where the ivory tower aspect comes in is is here. If a strategy is developed, and let's imagine that it's an outstanding strategy, by any objective assessment, it is an outstanding strategy for a company. The question is, is it still 
a good strategy if the company that it's developed for is actually not in a position to execute on it, okay? So if the company doesn't actually have the readiness or the capability to pursue in a practical way the roadmap that's provided in these strategies, then the answer is probably no, right? Because they simply are not going to be able to give effect to that strategy. And and therefore, I would argue, it's not a particularly good strategy in that case. And the Mm -hmm. point here is that whether a company has the readiness and the capability to pursue a particular strategy is absolutely discernible. In other words, there's no real excuse for not knowing that a company can't deliver on a strategy that's been developed for it. And this is whether it's been developed by an external consultant or internal uh, sort of stakeholders. Um, The crux is you have to know whether the, the company is in a position to actually execute against that strategy. So this is the ivory tower then I'm referring to. When there's a disconnect between the requirements of a particular strategy and the capabilities of the organization that it's been designed for, you're staring failure in the face. That's just not a recipe that's going to lead to success. So a good strategy, therefore, can be defined as one that's both accurate and ambitious, but that which meets the company where it is. So Mm. what is required in terms of developing a good digital transformation strategy is not just that it should have a very compelling and ambitious, visionary kind of uh, ambition to it, but also that it understands precisely where the company is today and takes that into account in terms of mapping out the transformational journey. So the strategist that designs that strategy needs the appropriate level of objectivity about the environment that they find, coupled with the right kinds of diagnostic tools to present that reality to the leadership team. And the leadership team, as we discussed earlier, must be able to accept this reality and to respond accordingly, to take responsibility Mm. uh, to what to what they have, uh, and to take the right sort of actions to change it, which the strategist ought to have captured in the strategy. It's almost as if you have a person who, let's say myself, uh, I've only ever driven a normal car, but suddenly I believe I can drive an F1 vehicle on on the open road, but the fact of the matter is I do not have the ability to do so. And this is the challenge facing leaders and organizations in a much more complex and variable environment the key modes within business today. Uh, and forgive me for not interrupting you, Jason. So this feels like a bit of a masterclass. I'm busy taking in everything that you have been noting. I'm sure the listeners are as yourself. Um, I see we we well over time, but uh, I think it's been an incredibly valuable discussion and then incredibly enlightening. So thank you very much just for sharing your knowledge with us today. So if you want to wrap, th- wrap things up with a bit of a bow, and I think you've been dealing with change <laughs> with your dogs there at the moment, as you said, uh, <laughs> having a plan to, to move about. Uh, how would you just go about summarizing all this uh, just with someone within a nutshell, just so they can think about it and take it forward? Thanks, Adam. I think you hit on a point earlier, actually, that is really the uh, the critical insight to take away from all of this. You said it sounds like it's all about people, and that is absolutely mm-hmm. spot on. And everyone who has worked in the digital transformation space for any significant amount of time comes to the same conclusion. The reality is that not once did you hear me mention technology as the problem in a digital transformation. And that's because it almost never is a problem. Um, Mm. It's always about people. And I want to leave you with uh, an anecdote, I think, that is quite pertinent in this respect. And and this will be sort of my closing thoughts. Uh, So again, I was uh, consulting to a particular company and and interviewing a CMO uh, who happened to be the person driving the change in the organization. It had taken him a couple of years and he 
had really been having a, a tough time of it, but it finally sort of succeeded in starting to drive the change that he was looking for. And so I was quite curious as to know about the difficulties he experienced and, and how he finally overcame those difficulties. We had a coffee and, uh, and I asked him about it. And, and I said, how did, how did you do that? So he said, Jason, I had to deal with uh, a board and an exco that were highly reluctant to change, highly resistant. They uh, weren't really listening to any of the principles I spoke about. They weren't really terribly interested in the future that I spoke about. They didn't really believe that we needed to change. Uh, mm -hmm. It was an ongoing conversation that he had over months and months and months. He said it often got very heated. He received a lot of very uh, strong pushback. He said there were times when he thought uh, he didn't know if he'd still have a job. Uh, it became incredibly stressful and incredibly difficult for him. But he absolutely believed in the need for this organization to go through this transformation. Uh, and it was very clear to him it was something they had to do. And so for that reason, uh, he continued to push that narrative and to try to justify why they ought to do it. Yes. And he said, Jason, ultimately, all I can tell you is that what it actually took to get this done, to drive this transformation, uh, was courage. He literally had to put his job on the line in order to drive this transformation. And, mm. and I think that starts to say a lot about what is required in this kind of transformation and, and really shine the light on the fact that it's, it's not about technology at all. Digital transformation is, in fact, a misnomer. It's really also about people transformation and, and people transforming themselves. This person had to find the courage within himself to drive a very difficult kind of agenda in that organization. And in fact, it went to the, the extent of him almost you know, losing his job. How many people would be willing to do that? Probably not many. No. How many leaders are willing to accept uncomfortable realities about uh, their organization and are willing to put the interests of the organization ahead of any sort of personal uh, career interests, for example. Probably mm -hmm. not that many. But, but this is really what is sometimes called for in terms of a transformation. And so the final message I would leave you with is what you've already stated. A digital mm -hmm. transformation is around people. Um, and the more I think we understand that both as change agents and as uh, leadership within organizations ourselves, I think the increasingly successful we will be with driving successful digital business transformations. Mm, 100%. I think, thank you, Jason. I think you, you've summarized that uh, excellently. And uh, just for those listening, I know there's a ton of information uh, that Jason's given here uh, in our discussion today. So I'd advise, listen to it again. Beyond just the people aspect, he, he really breaks down the issue of digital transformation into, I wouldn't say bite-sized chunks. It is a complex topic, but into ones of which I think you could really learn and take insight into your own businesses and organizations. If you want to tap into that insight, uh, you could just visit Litsema's website at www.litsema.ca.za and reach out to the customer and strategy team. Uh, they're also within the customer marketing space. Uh, you can email info at litsema.ca.za or also email customer.marketing at litsema.ca.za. Jason, you can find him on LinkedIn along with uh, Litsema as an organization. Find us on the LinkedIn page. Uh, just search for us there. Jason, thanks again very much for joining us. Very much appreciate your time. I hope you have a good afternoon. Adam, thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed uh, talking to you today. And uh, yeah, and same to you. Have a great one. Cheers for that. No, now. thank you. No, it was a pleasure to listen. And uh, we will be back with you next time for the next episode of Let's Emma Talk. Thank you for listening.